This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Conversations on Dan's listener survey is back. It's been a few years since we have checked in with our listeners to get your feedback. So we have put together a short list of questions that takes just a couple minutes to complete. By responding to our 10 questions, you will help us get a better understanding of our audience, which we will use to support the podcast in the future and bring you more of the content that you are looking for. We are already receiving really helpful feedback and great listener suggestions, which we will be addressing in an upcoming episode of COD. Thank you for tuning in and being a valuable part of this podcast's future. Click the link in the description of this episode to take our survey now or visit conversationsondancepod.com. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Today on Conversations on Dance, we are joined by New York-based choreographer and dancer Caleb Teicher. Caleb began their career as a founding member of Michelle Dorrance's critically acclaimed dance company, Dorrance Dance, quickly achieving personal critical acclaim as well when they received a Bessie Award at age 17. In 2015, Caleb shifted their creative focus towards Caleb Teicher and Company, a creative home for incubating new concert dance works from Teicher's unique perspective. We talked to Caleb about their unique early training, how musicality and a broad range of musical styles play an integral role in their creative output, and their upcoming performances of Swing Out. If you are located in the Houston area, see Swing Out on April 9th at 7.30 at the Society for the Performing Arts. Ticket and performance information available at spahouston.org, or click the link in the description of this episode. Caleb, thank you so much for joining us uh, this afternoon. We're really grateful to have you on. And we wanted to just start with a little bit about your uh, background and how you first became interested in dance. Yeah, um, I was born in the early 90s. And so come the mid to late 90s, 
boy bands were a thing and Britney Spears and Aaron Carter and the sort of a, a sort of particular golden age of, of dance and music entertainment was a thing. So before I, I know, uh, <laughs> honestly, it's kind of coming back. Um, but before I took a dance class and got into capital D dance, I just danced on my bed in a bucket hat to the latest NSYNC record. So that, that was really my first love of dance moment. The first thing I studied that was an art, um, capital A art was drums. I, I used to kind of hit everything with my hands and, and a friend of mine's mother was a drum teacher. She taught drum lessons in their garage. So I took drum lessons and I did that from the ages of six to 10. And then when I was 10, I saw tap dancing on television and it just, there was something that clicked, not in a, this is what I want to do with my life sort of click, just a, this makes so much sense to me. It is dancing, which I enjoy recreationally on my bed and it's drumming, which I've come to really appreciate as something that you can study and get better at and, and, and invest yourself in. So I took my first tap class and right away, it just seems like the type of thing that I wouldn't get bored of quickly. And I think right. with kids, it's just a fight of what will they not get bored of quickly. And so I, and then 18 years later, here I am. So how did the neighbors react to drum lessons in the garage? <laughs> uh, oh, uh, fine. Actually, it was, it was their garage. And this, this wasn't in New York City. This is in the suburbs. Right. Um, <laughs> and basically, basically everyone in that family played music or it was like it was sort of like a recording studio by the time I left. So um, it's cool. Great. So do you feel like there was a connection to your interest in drumming, to your interest in tap? Like, I mean, you, you're obviously a musical person then. And so was tapping mm -hmm. sort of an extension of that for you? Yeah, totally. For me, the whole point of dancing was dancing to music. I, it took it was much later in life that I learned that some people got interested in dance as a sort of a musical or a rhythmic right. discipline. Right. But for me, it was about you put on music your bottom wants to move. You want to make sounds that is dancing. Um, uh -huh. so, so yeah, it was basically the same thing. I used to drum along to some 41 records. And then at some point I started tap dancing along the some 41 records. And then at some point I became less interested in some 41. Uh, but the, the interest <laughs> in music stayed. Well, you're really throwing us back to a very specific time. I haven't thought about some 41 probably since they were, you know, in their you're, heyday. You're welcome. I actually went to see them in concert a couple of years ago and it really brought me back. That's <laughs> so fun. fun. I wonder too, just because of the rhythmic aspect, just to like expand on what we're talking about with the drumming, how do you feel like that informed you? Like once you started tap, do you feel like it felt even more natural to you because you were already a drummer and there's, and I, the musicality of tapping is just so fascinating. Yeah. I, I guess what it made it seem like is that I was a quote natural at tap dancing, but I don't really think anyone's a natural at anything. I think I had quietly cultivated parts of my brain as a drummer. And then when I walked right. into my first tap class, there were so many connections that had already been made in a different discipline that, that it made it seem like I just sort of implicitly understood tap dance, but I didn't implicitly understand anything. I, I had just trained as a drummer, but right. in terms of uh, ideas of music theory and musicality and rhythm and sort of 
teaching your body to keep a beat and to express that beat in a in a in a musical or emotional or expressive way that that is all coming from drumming and went straight to tap dancing so it was it was really the best i it's actually kind of stunning to me that some people learn to tap dance without ever having taken a, a music lesson right. because it right. seems like a lot to learn at once yeah right like, we we talk about this in in ballet in the context of ballet <clears throat> uh you know for us music is paramount as well but um it, it I just tap would seem it would seem to me to be completely impossible to be an unmusical tapper. You know, it's like a, in ballet, people can slide by based on other, you know, talents or facilities. But in tap, um, what is that like? Do have you ever encountered someone who doesn't have a musical instinct? Like that seems to be I'm not, not going to call anyone out. But no, I don't mean to call. <laughs> no, I mean it, it seems not only while, for you while to I'm here. Advantage. Let me burn some bridges. And, um, <laughs> no, I, I think I think what you're getting at is that is that of course musicality seems to be an integral part of so many dance traditions. Right. But for a dance tradition where part of what you're doing is engaging with the what we'll call the sonic plane, mm-hmm. right, or the oral plane or something like that, mm-hmm. you have no choice but to recognize that the impact of your musicality looms larger, right? If someone is a less than musical ballet dancer, at least they're not reinforcing it with the sound that they make. Sure. But we, we have amplified feet. And so an, an unmusical or arrhythmic choice sort of yells, look at me, I'm lacking in musicality. Right. Um, So, but it's also, I mean, this is, this is the case with a lot of, dance traditions in like the African-American diaspora, like a connection to music and a, a, the, the values are different of, uh, essentially. The, mm-hmm. the values of aesthetics and the value of movement, the value of momentum is just completely different. So it's, it's I did end up studying ballet um, for a, a long time in my life, but it, it's the, the values are, are, are so different. Um, right. yeah. And I think that's what's kind of cool about taking different dance forms. You, yeah. you try to marry those values. Right. And, and you did, you had such a, a broad um, background in, for your training. Like, tell us, tell us a little bit about that. What, what forms of dance you were studying that led um, to the moment where you ultimately started to dance professionally? Yeah, I was a tap dancer's tap dancer in that that's what I wanted to do, period. Right. But I was in a student performance company and the director of that student performance company said it nicely, but not nicely. Basically, Caleb, you look like a dinosaur or a wet noodle or something like that. You gotta. Huh. I, I was in a dance company with a bunch of a bunch of dancers who had other training, and so I carried my body differently. and And she encouraged me, especially I. Um, I was going to stand out because I was the only male bodied person in that company. Um, uh, so I, I had to I had to look like I know what I was doing. I was also the youngest person in that company. Um, so I sort of got forced into jazz and ballet class and didn't like it. And then at some point I liked it because it was challenging, but I, there was never any illusion there that I wanted to be a ballet or jazz dancer. I really just wanted to be a tap dancer. And then, uh, when I was 16, I graduated high school a year early and didn't know what I wanted to go to college for. So I did the, the seemingly wise thing now that I think about it. And I took a gap year and I moved to New York. And in that gap year is that's sort of the bridge between I was a I was an enthusiastic student and I was a working professional and that I woke up and I just took class all day, every day and and 
sort of learned all the things that I didn't know. I, I, I really give the studios I grew up at a lot of credit. They, they prepped me a lot better than a lot of other folks who moved to New York and, and don't sort of know they don't have good training or they don't know how things work. I, I felt really lucky, but there was also, I, I was just an after school dancer. You know, I'd take right. one jazz class a week, one ballet class a week. So even if I was enthusiastic, my, my saturation was sort of limited. So when I moved to New York, I, and also I was used to getting up for at six in the morning for school. I, I had this whole day in front of me and I said, what am I going to do with myself? So I used to take the 10 a.m. ballet class, the 1130 ballet class. I'd go to the subway to get a sandwich. I'd come back and take 2.30 Horton with Milton Myers. I'd take a break and then I'd go start taking TAF classes 6 p.m. onwards. And that, that was so like, fun. it was amazing. And I was just so, I was so hungry for knowledge. I was so hungry to, to, to see, to see and learn all this stuff about dance that I, I, I didn't know that I didn't know. So this is interesting because it's making me think a little bit as ballet dancers, we go to summer intensive programs where we, you know, take six weeks, five weeks and do exactly what you're saying. So is that something that was, that is available in the tap genre? Cause it sounds like you kind of created your own syllabus in that way. Totally. Yeah. Year, uh, year rounds, I was an after school dancer, but over the summer I was trying to get into the sort of young tap dancer scene we don't have as many three or four or five week programs, but week long mm-hmm. festivals in the summer were a huge thing when mm-hmm. I was a kid and still are a huge thing. Uh, I went to a few of them. I went to the New York city tap festival. I went to one called tap kids that a lot of people went to. Um, and, but I, I wasn't flying across the country to go to the LA tap fests or even going down the DC for the DC tap fest. I was kind of New York local. Mm-hmm. Um, also, this is now, let's, let's call it the mid-2000s, and Instagram wasn't a thing yet, and there were a couple things on YouTube, you know, that I remember, maybe, vaguely. Right. I remember, like, I, I don't remember looking for tap dance on YouTube, I remember looking for, like, shoes. Oh my god, shoes on YouTube. <laughs> right. so, so I don't think I even was aware yet that, that YouTube or any sort of social media platform could be a source of knowledge right. for dance. So I really relied on good after-school training. I had I had great teachers growing up, uh, specifically my mentor David Ryder. Um, and then over the summers, I would go and sort of bathe in whatever I could for five days. But as as you know, five days of instruction nothing. is is nothing compared to being in New York for a year or two years and just right. going to class every day. Not right. to mention when I moved to New York, I was sixteen, seventeen, and everyone else was in there. Everyone in the open class was in their early twenties or mid twenties. So mm-hmm. I was, I was the baby, but I also was just so green and so excited. And I don't know, I was, I was probably like insufferable, but I was having a great time. <laughs> so how did this, um, this moment where you're just training so heavily, how did it eventually manifest in some professional work? Did someone spot you in class or were you making connections that way? Basically, um, I had a connection before I moved to New York city to Michelle Dorrance um, but I moved to New York city and I've, I've told this story before and it sounds cute. So apologies in advance, but I, I went to Michelle's class. She was teaching at BDC every Monday night at seven 30. And she remembered me from a, from a spring workshop weekend I had done with her at some point. And I said, I live here now. And she said, you live here now, Caleb, I'm going to put you in everything. 
And I thought, ha, 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 cool. And I should mention, this is before Dorrance Dance as a company existed. And this is before I was aware. I, I, I think the, the biggest thing I didn't know moving to New York was what a professional dance career looked like. I knew that it existed, but I think like a lot of people growing up, I thought it was Broadway and the Rockettes and TV film, or I, I, don't, I don't know what I was aware of. I certainly wasn't aware that concert, being a concert dancer was a, was a thing. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was a class connection. I met Cartier Williams, uh, taking his class and ended up dancing for him a couple weeks later. That was when I moved to New York back then. And I'm sure it's still this way. Now you went to class, someone said, Hey, I'm working on this project. It's big or small, or it's paid or it's not paid. Right. Will you do it? Mm-hmm. And, or someone would say, Hey, you should audition. Are you going to that audition tomorrow? Because I'm going to that audition tomorrow. So it's, it's really about being, uh, or at least it was, I think it still is being around. Yeah. No, that was they actually just hit upon something that I'm really, I would be curious to see like, like post, not post, well, you know, post COVID where we're post March, 2020, where things have <laughs> all shifted the new world. I do wonder if that is the way it is now, because that really was such an, uh, like a specific culture within the New York dance community where people would just offer you work or like, like you mm-hmm. said, like, like you'd um, go to auditions together and things like that. But um, you had a pretty big break early on. Um, you actually won a Bessie at the age of 17. Is that yeah. correct? 17? It was correct. Total fluke. Whoops. Yeah. Well, no, but I mean, I, so my question related to that is then um, what, what kind of effect did that have on your career? Like, did you, was that majorly important in opening doors or did it sort of add a level of pressure to, to live up to that moment since you, you know, sort of proved yourself as a sort of like prodigy? Uh, yeah, both. The answer is both. both. Um, it did open up some doors, but it, they didn't seem qu- the, do- the doors that opened weren't so clear to me. Maybe. Uh-huh. Um, I guess for the, if you had asked me then, I would have said the Bessie became something that went on at the bottom of my resume when I went to musical theater auditions and no one cared. Absolutely. No one cared. No one knew what a Bessie was. Absolutely not. Um, uh-huh. uh, and then on the flip side, I think people did kind of say, who is this kid? Question mark. But I don't think right. they ever really got an answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> may, maybe now they feel like they have an answer, but I, I, I mean, I, the day after the bestie ceremony, when I like boogied on the dance floor with Trisha Brown, I woke up and took my 10 a.m. ballet class and my 1130 right. ballet class and my 230 Horton class and, and my 6 p.m. tap class. I, I just went back to training because I, I knew that I had so much to learn. And I, I think what it, what it maybe did is, is gave me like a ton of early validation that probably prevented me from quitting early on because mm. moving to New York, not being in a program, having a good sense of community, but a sort of disjointed sense of community and also dealing with the same amount of failure and disappointment and heartbreak that everyone experiences as an artist. Uh, I, I had all that, the, the getting the best seat at 17 didn't prevent me from having those experiences, but when I went home and cried because I got cut from four auditions in a row or something, I could also say, well, at least I have that thing that's hanging on my wall that says <laughs> I was a good dancer when I was 17. Um, and, and, and also, frankly, I really have my parents to thank because I would often call them and say, maybe this just doesn't make sense. Maybe I should stop doing this. And, and they said, no, this, this seems like a good idea. I think you just kind of have to push through it. 
Oh, that's so, nice. Right. That shout, was out, shout out parents. Yeah, always. <laughs> um, that was something I was going to ask you is like you mentioned, you initially went to New York having a gap year thinking like, you know, I'll kind of figure it out, figure out what comes next. Were you ever seriously considering stopping going to college, maybe finding something else or even in these moments kind of, of feeling down, were you really aware like this is for me? It's just I'm just in a discouraged moment right now. Uh, I definitely had major moments of thinking I should move back home for a bit. It, being in New York as a 17-year-old is really overwhelming. Can't imagine. Yeah. Period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I, at, at the time, at the time, my my threats to go to college or quit dancing or whatever seemed earnest. And now I think they they were probably fleeting moments. But, you know, of course, when you're younger, your emotions feel so, so, so huge. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. bigger, bigger than, bigger than ever. Um, right. So, uh, that's a great question. I, I don't know. I, I, I actually did apply to a college and I did get into said college mm-hmm. and I ultimately told that college no, because I realized that it wasn't the right fit for me. Mm-hmm. Mostly because, I mean, this is maybe I, at the time I was, I was really at that point really confused as to what sort of path to walk down as a dancer. And I had a lot of encouragement from my ballet teacher and from Milton Myers, my horton teacher. My ballet teacher was Egal Perry. And um, and I was taking contemporary dance class and I, I was just kind of everywhere all the time and I loved it all. And the program I auditioned for was a contemporary, you know, kind of traditional conservatory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that they there wasn't really space at that conservatory for me to do all the things that I was newly interested in like ballet and modern and contemporary and Mm -hmm. also continue to be a tap dancer. Um, This program only had tap dance as an elective. It was a one level elective and it was the type of conservatory that really didn't want you skipping out on the weekends or the evenings to take tap class. And I was not really interested in muting parts of myself Mm -hmm. so that I could continue my education. Also it was expensive. (laughs) All good reasons. Um, So what was the sort of turning point for you in New York City where you felt you started to feel more comfortable with um, the level of work you were getting and a little bit more confident without having that those kind of um, um, moments of self-doubt, like maybe I should go to college, maybe I should consider a different path? (laughs) Um, Probably about three months ago. um... Uh, that is That's kind great. of the honest this yeah, well, also i mean i don't know the I, I i still look up college programs sometimes um uh i i don't know i i don't think there was a point of of i've i've made it or i'm making it or anything like that um i i think the the way that my that the last i've been in new york 11 years now i think the way that the last 11 years have gone have really shape-shifted quite a bit it's not like the whole time I've been trying to do this one thing and then I'm still on my way to achieving that one thing. It's, it's not a linear sort right. of pyramid goal experience. It's, it's kind of kind of has a, has an hourglass shape going in and out all the time. Um, and then it makes a lot of turns and, and things like that. So in terms of when I felt comfortable is probably once I felt like I could pay rent without feeling freaked out. Um, that yeah. was, that was a big, that was a big moment. Big yeah. Really exciting. <laughs> um, and then in terms of artistically, I think at some point, and I think this has nothing to do with anything I achieved. I think it just has to do with maybe how long I've been quote in the game that I feel like I could have a year that feels like a bad year career wise or artistically, mm-hmm. but I would still be here. 
Um, and I think in your first two, three, four years as an artist, one bad year is 25 or 50% of your yeah. entire career. And it feels like you're a failure. Like dog um, ears. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, they feel, they, they loom so large. And now yeah. I think, oh, you know, this year was a slow year. This year was a big year. Um, and next year will be different. And my, and my desires will be different. My goals will be different. And, and what I'm working towards will be different. But hopefully I can still pay my rent. And hopefully I can still be here exploring. Yeah. Let's talk about um, you founding your own company because that's pretty fantastic. When did that happen? When did that idea come about? And how did you kind of start down that path? Yeah, I had, um, I think it's Twyla Tharp's phrase, a creative habit, meaning that I just like making little combos and ditties for myself as a teenager, Mm -hmm. Um, all tap dance. And, And with my free time, with my free practice time, I would make myself solos or I'd make a duo for me and a friend. Um, once in high school, I got hired to choreograph on a local dance studio and I felt very legit. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I just, I liked making things. It was a way for me to process what I was learning in class. It was mm-hmm. just something I sort of did naturally. Um, and so when I came to New York, I was still doing that. I was still going into the studio by myself for corralling some friends. Once I started teaching in New York, I would make combos for class and, and it, it was just a fun thing to do, but all the things I made were between 30 seconds and three and a half minutes at most. Right. Um, and I think I realized at some point that when you make longer works, uh, there's a chance of it being sort of programmed or presented. And also if you make a longer work, you can explore something in greater depth than you right. can in 30 seconds or 60 seconds or two minutes. So I made a couple three or five minute works between the years 2010 and 2015. And then in 2015, I made my first 10 minute work, which felt endless, so long, so much to choreograph. Um, but I enjoyed it so much. And, and frankly, I just got a lot of good feedback, a lot of positive reinforcements saying, we really like what you made. We'd like to see more of it. And it wasn't necessarily financial commission be programmed at this fancy venue. It was Hey, do you want to perform that 10 minute piece here? We'll give you 200 bucks. And, but that was enough for me to say, that sounds amazing. Um, and, and so amongst the, I was at the time freelancing for like five or six different companies, um, all sort of all across the spectrum. I was working, uh, endurance dance as a tap dancer. I was working with David Parker's company, the bang group as a sort of postmodern percussive dancer. I was, uh, working in chase Brock's contemporary dance company and also, working as Chase's associate choreographer for musicals. Um, I was still swing dancing socially. I was kind of doing everything. But one thing I started to add in was making my own work and occasionally presenting it for fistfuls of dollars. And then um, in 2016 or 17, suddenly I turned around and I had like three or four or five 20 to 30 minute works. And I got my first opportunity to have sort of my own evening of just my work. And it was so wow. fun because I got to hire my favorite people who are a lot of them my friends and, mm-hmm. and bring them together and put on what I thought was a good show. Um, right. And then it snowballed into more time, energy, money, opportunity going towards me as a director, choreographer, dancer, than me as a dancer for hire for other people. So right. if you think about sort of my life in proportions, at some point it was like 90% <laughs> work for other people. 10% work for myself. And then at some point 
the the 10% just grew until suddenly I, I wasn't really dancing for anyone else. Um, and that's, that's how it happens. That's great. Right. So how do you go about curating the team you want artistically on stage and off? I mean, obviously you have all these connections now because you've, you've danced for so many other people and you, I mean, just, even just being in the number of disciplines you were like dipping a, a toe in, you know, that's a really wide array of artists. So how do you narrow it down into what you want to present? I didn't. I did a really bad job originally. <laughs> the, the, to give you an example, the first rep concert that we toured that honestly is still pretty similar to what we toured uh, required some very specific casting. It required three or four tap dancers, all of whom had to be extremely technically capable because the piece was monstrously difficult <laughs> and choreographed through. It was like a 30, 35 minute piece and none of it was improvised. And it was wow. dense. It's, it was a uh, Glenn Gould's recordings of Goldberg variations, box Goldberg variations. So it's just dense. So that required four people that did that. And you we were talking about career long tap dancers. Then I did a duet with uh, a, a champion swing dancer, my, my Lindy hop partner, whose name is Nathan view, who is, incre- is incredible at what he does, but could not do the Goldberg variations piece. So then I had to cast right. a completely different kind of dancer just for one piece. And then in the middle, we had a piece called Small and Tall, which was a 12-minute duet for basically two modern dancers. Um, so going on the road as a small company to do one hour of work or something, I had to bring eight people. Um, okay. And all of them did different things. But I think mm-hmm. that was sort of what was exciting about being on tour at first, because it's not like, oh, here are eight tap dancers. They're all going to tap dance. And that's right. that's the show. There was it was all of us trying to find the place of commonality. And I think the place of commonality was whatever the work was, musicality, some sort of theatricality involved. And um, so I, I didn't do a good job of paring down because I, I, I resisted the idea of, of branding. Uh, but I also, by, by resisting the idea of branding or making my company cohesive, I also made it really difficult for myself. <laughs> Um, but it was totally worth it because I, I got to do the things I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Right. But at the same time, you didn't put yourself in a box either as to like what your choreography was and what your company was going to be. It kind of allowed you to take it off wherever. Maybe. I, I had a lot of people at a lot of different points say, you know, at some point you're going to have to decide what it is you, you, you know, what, what flag you wave, right. um, you know, what, what it is that you do or what it is that you are, or what have you. Um, and I still haven't done it, but, uh, which is why my like sort of self self describing bio changes every year to try to just say, what is it that I do? What is it that I'm trying to stand for? Mm -hmm. Um, and it, and it sort of changes every year just based on whatever it is that I'm doing at the time, really. Right. I want to take a quick detour really fast, just because this is something that fascinates, I'm sure, Michael, as well as ballet dancers. You mentioned that you had a piece that was 35 minutes long with no nothing improvised for us as ballet dancers. Of course, like we would never, like we hardly ever improvise. How rare is that in the tap dance swing dance field? Very rare. Yeah. Um, most, I mean, I, I have a lot of, I have a lot of theories about why that's the case. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll just take it from two angles. The, the fact is yes, basically all Lindy hop jazz tap dance performance has elements of choreography and elements of improvisation. Mm-hmm. On one side, without thinking about the sort of, uh, we could just say these dance traditions value 
improvisation and individual expression, right? Mm -hmm. Jazz music does that. In jazz music, they play the tune, they play an arrangement, and then they take solos. So you could say simply enough that could be an expression of that. Mm -hmm. However, another way of thinking about it is tap dance and Lindy Hop and jazz have historically been underfunded. (laughs) Um, So who's got the time to spend 35 minutes rehearsing or, you know, or, you know, teaching 35 minutes of choreography, he probably learns the remaining choreography on the way to the gig. And then someone said, great. And you're going to take a five minute solo because we don't, we don't have the rest of the gig. Um, so, so that's a, that's another way of looking at, but I'd like to go with the more positive spin, which is to say, this is just a value of these traditions. Mm -hmm. But I also sometimes wonder whether the value of that tradition is something that came out of, of, of a positive circumstance or a negative circumstance. Um, you know, if, if and when tap dance and Lindy Hop and jazz receive more funding, is there going to be more choreography and less improvisation? Um, or are, are people going to double down and say improvisation is as important as ever? I've also heard uh, artists of different genres who talk about improvisation being less valued in the sort of nonprofit art space because you can't commission an improvisation, mm-hmm. but you can commission a new piece of choreography or a new piece Correct. of music. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know... Funding, yeah. funding streams, if you want to get into that, like it's weird. That's interesting. <laughs> no, that's, that's all super interesting. I, I, I'm just curious about like your own relationship to improvisation and, and your like personally as an artist, how you relate to it. I, I, um, cause I'm just thinking like, I think the only time I ever had to improv, I actually just like choreographed my improv, you know, like ballet dancers are <laughs> so, so neurotic and it's just not, it's unnatural to us. It's a muscle we don't flex often unless you are getting to work with foresight or one of, you know, for a foresight disciple. And like, that's very valued there. Um, but for you, uh, like how does it affect your own performance or like, do you have a, a preference to improv or or choreography or they just both are different facets of you it depends on the circumstance um i like improvising more than i ever have um and it's mostly because i recognize how exciting it is to feel this isn't a word the liveness of a performance Mm -hmm. um and i think you can have a really live, a really present performance with a fully choreographed piece, but you also having improvisation, having sort of open-ended, let's call it stream of consciousness improvisation allows you to, to take chances and explore, explore concepts or ideas or expressions that, that aren't on the page. And so they can really be a reaction to the moment. Um, so, and it also allows me now that I've had my company for a number of years and different casts have come in to do pieces that involve extended improvisation, it means that a new cast member can really change the shape of the entire work in a really exciting way. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so that's really meaningful. On the flip side of that, I also sometimes just think that choreography is my, my choreography isn't as good as my improvisation. Um, really? In terms of, in terms of the, it's like, I think a lot of people say, Oh, for example, you choreographing your improvised section, um, you thought you did that one because it made you anxious, but two because you thought it would be better, right? If you had thought yeah. it would it would be better to improvise, then you would have improvised. But mm-hmm. sometimes I will fully choreograph a section and then say, you know what, it was better when I just improvised this section. Cool. Um, and so I'll have done some research or some groundwork, and then I'll forget about it. 
Hmm. I wonder too, like dovetailing on to this, if um, you feel like dancers within these disciplines who are so comfortable with improvisation might tend to go into choreography much more easily than say ballet dancers who like Michael said, we don't ever really flex that muscle. Or do you see it as like two completely different disciplines? Kind of like you just mentioned maybe. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, it really is all across the board. I know, I know dancers who love to improvise and hate learning choreography. I know dancers who love learning choreography and love improvising. It's, it's, it's just a, it's just a thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be really hard to be a professional swing dancer, tap dancer, jazz dancer without being an improviser. But I think that's just because that's how the tradition is structured. Um, uh, and, and I'm in support of that mostly because I think it's such a fun part of your brain to open up as a dancer. Um, I encourage, I encourage people to, to, to get over the, the anxiety of, of maybe you'll do a dumb thing or a bad thing. <laughs> um, because it's so fun when you do a bad thing. Like yeah. it's, it's just, um, it's, it's thrilling when you walk off stage and you go, wow, that was awful, but I did it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh. Okay, let's let's uh, switch gears a little bit and talk. Um, back. Yeah. <laughs> On April 9th, you'll be performing your work Swing Out at the Society for Performing Arts in Houston, Texas. Can you give us a little bit of background about the creative process for this work and um, what audiences in Houston can expect? Yeah, I, um, I came to Lindy Hop about 10 years ago, my first year in New York, where I, by chance, met some famous swing dancers who offered to introduce me to someone who taught swing dance in New York, and we traded Lindy Hop lessons for tap lessons. I wasn't aware that people went out social dancing. I knew that salsa existed. I knew that swing dance existed in the, swing dance existed in the past. I didn't know that there was a thriving, massive, international scene of competitive and social and class-taking and performance-making swing dancers. Uh, and it sort of blew my mind and it, it ultimately has become sort of like my favorite thing about the dance world these days um, is, is this Lindy Hop scene that exists everywhere. Um, Korea, France, Brazil, Japan, China, everywhere. Um, that being said, uh, I started incorporating Lindy Hop into the work I did on stage once I started working with my swing dance partner, Nathan Bew. Although I guess I had put a couple of Lindy Hop sections and things before. Um, but the work I did with Nathan, which was called Meet Ella, it was a duet, was like maybe my favorite thing I'd ever done. Um, and so I invested in that aspect of creation and I invested in my working relationship with Nathan and kept doing more Lindy Hop things and got more into that scene. This is a really long lead up. All to say, um, yeah. I was, I, at a few years ago, uh, I was, I was at the Joyce and I did Meet Ella and, uh, Aaron Maddox, who does programming at the Joyce said, what about like a big swing dance show, like a big swing dance show? And I said, are you going to give me the money to make a big swing dance show? <laughs> and he said, yes. And I said, where, okay. s- let me sign a paper. I'll do it. I'll, I'm, right. I'm so excited. And, um, and so I assembled what, what is affectionately known as the brain trust, which is a collection of sort of my, my, my favorite colleagues in the swing dance scene. Um, and we created the show together. So I'm, I'm sort of the, I, I'm, I'm the original, the original with the director of the, of the work, but over two or three years, I shared basically every creative decision with Nathan, v, uh, Nathan Bue, Evita Arce, Latasha Barnes, 
Macy Sullivan, and Al Vilner, the big band leader and composer who we work with on the work. The show Swing Out is, uh, has 12 of the best swing dancers in the world. Um, we fly them in from all over to do the show. And there's a 10-piece big band on stage uh, full of incredible jazz musicians. And we do a 70-minute performance. And then that's the first act. And it has choreography. It has improvisation. It has high-flying tricks. It has subtle moments. And then we take a quick intermission. And then we come back and we invite the audience on stage or outside, depending on the venue. And there's a social dance for about 40 minutes. Oh, my and God. Band, how fun. And the band, the band plays. That we watched the like teaser reel or sizzle reel for it, and I was just like, I sent it to Michael. I was like, "This is so cool. We're gonna have so much fun um, in this conversation because it's just the energy. It just ugh, it seems like so amazing, especially live. I can't imagine." Yeah, I I don't want to get um, detoured too much, but you brought up Ella Fitzgerald, and it's just making me think. You've already mentioned Bach, and I know that you um, you make dances to like beatboxing and um it's just so boy bands we've discussed <laughs> yeah boy bands um, absolutely you know, like always all, boy bands. it's such an, a, a vast array of inspiration musical inspiration so how um and maybe you can talk about this work in particular but how does your own like artistic voice differ based upon whatever composition you're using great question um, I think I am the same person listening and dancing to different music and the ends. I, I don't know. It's a really tough question. Yeah, um, I, I, no, no, it's, it's a good question. It's just a tough one in that I think, yeah, I, I listen to all these different kinds of music and they all make me want to dance in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely think I've become more or less comfortable with certain styles of, or genres of music. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm always sort of keeping my ear open and trying to, trying to see just what I respond to or what is interesting. Um, right. and when I first heard Chris Lee's beatbox, I said, Whoa, that's new. That's exciting. I need to dance to that. And so I did. And when I heard the Goldberg variations, I was, I was not a classical music junkie or anything. I just, I just thought it was fascinating. And, and so it's, I, it's hard to say other than. I just put it on and I feel like dancing and the end. (laughs) (laughs) So you were mentioning how even as a tap dancer, as a dancer all throughout New York, you didn't realize that there was this big underground social dance, um, swing dancing community. So what do you hope that audiences will kind of learn about this really great social dancing from your um, production? Yeah, I mean... Uh, the brain trust and I talk about this a lot, like what, what swing out could be. And the truth is there are lots of ways, there are lots of points of access to the arts. I don't, I don't know how y'all got into ballet, but here are some examples of how you get into ballet. One, your mom signs you up at a local dance studio Mm -hmm. and you know nothing about ballet. And then you learn Two, you go see the nutcracker in the winter time and you turn to your Wow, I'm really nailing it here. We're raising um, our because we're not. This yeah. is a visual, Rebecca was we're a both one. I was a two. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you go to see a nutcracker and you say, "I want to be on that stage." Or three, probably present day, you see someone doing ballet on TikTok and you go, "Whoa, I want to dance on my toes." Mm-hmm. Three, you watched Center Stage or whatever ABC Family is producing that's like a ballet drama or you know whatever. Right. Um, Black Swan. And so the same thing for Lindy Hop. What what gets people into Lindy Hop? 
It could be your friend says, oh, I'm going to this bar and there's a jazz band playing and suddenly you see two people or 20 people dancing in the corner and you say, what is that? I need mm-hmm. to do that. Right. Maybe it's a local dance studio that's offering Lindy Hop lessons. Maybe you saw the Gap commercial in the 90s or maybe you saw a video on TikTok of people doing Lindy Hop aerials in the 2020s. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, and so swing out is just another point of access for people that go to theaters and go to see shows um, to say, wow, Lindy hop is the coolest thing I've seen all month. I can't stop thinking about it. Maybe I should go figure out where I can take a Lindy hop lesson near me. Um, And I, I know that's happened from our show and, and it's been, it's been really exciting. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Caleb. And we hope that all of our listeners in the Houston area on April 9th will come out and see you and um and enjoy swing out and hopefully sign themselves up for some uh lessons afterwards because it sounds like you're doing something really inspiring and in um in spreading this joy of a a particular dance form to uh, a new audience yeah thank you so much thank you Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.